you're walking along and there's a full moon and I think, oh, I should read some Basho. It's, it's, and we know you, how you love the moon I from your dissertation. Moon. I love the bloody moon, me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get enough of the moon. <laughs> I really do talk about the moon a lot. I kind of such a woman. Oh no, join the club, I do too. <laughs> With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. I am very excited that this week our brilliant guest is actor Ophelia Loveybond. Ophelia began honing her skills in a youth theatre club at the age of 10. Since then, she's been working for over two decades, taking a variety of roles, including Apple's Trying, BBC's Roadkill, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, CBS's Elementary, and recently, This England, a series about British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in which she plays his wife, Carrie Johnson. Her latest role in Minx sees her front and centre as the exuberant young feminist Joyce Prigger, who seeks to dismantle the rigid gender norms of the 1970s by creating the first erotic magazine for women. Welcome to the podcast, Ophelia. Thank you for having me. I know you studied English at university, so have you always been an avid reader? Yes, I mean, very much so. It was, I mean, I know it's quite a cliche, but I was always reading. Um, My mum, whenever she'd come to look for me, I would always be reading somewhere. Um, I've, it's just it was something that was kind of cultivated. There were always books in the house. That we all had kind of library card members. So it was just very much a part of the fabric of my life to be reading. Yeah. I like that you use the phrase "you could always find me." Or I was always found reading. Because yeah. literally, when we arrived today, <laughs> for a start, I'm going to say this on the podcast: you were early. No one is ever early. So I mean, incredible, an incredible start. But you were found reading. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was just, I mean, I, it is, I mean, it is an addiction, a happy yeah. addiction, but I I am never without a book. If, if um, you know, I want to get a new bag or someone's giving me a present as a bag, a bag as a present, I always say, just make sure it can, it can carry a book. Um, and I, and often if I'm nearing the end of one, I will have a, another one ready to ready go. Ready to go, so yeah. I'm never on a tube journey with nothing to read. I mean, I find that unbearable. Uh, and you brought your books today. I and I love that they are... Oh, God, you're going to murder me. No, now. they're well-thumbed. <laughs> they're well-thumbed and they're, they've got little, like, note, note points. And, yeah, I'm very boffin about my books. I'm exactly the same. Good. I, I feel like anyone who sort of criticises that treatment of a book um, is perhaps missing the fact that they're thumbed because they're loved. Yeah, I've written in the pages and I folded down the pages because I loved it so much and it meant so much to me. I don't think any author would mind that you love something so much you circle it with pen yeah. or you you fold down the the corner of a page. It's, I mean, I I just don't understand why they they would love that. I mean, it also for me, um, kind of crystallizes a certain thought or an idea in my mind if I if I circle it and because you spot it more immediately and you can mm-hmm. you sort of. You memorise it, or at least I, I do. There, yeah. It's usually when I've seen um, the author articulate something that I felt or I've thought, but I've never been able to find the words for because mm. I don't have good enough words. <laughs> and they do, and I, I want to then carry that around with me. I want to wear it round my neck like pearls. Yeah. Um, 
a great feeling. What what sort of books did you gravitate towards when you were when you were a child? I was I mean anything that was put in front of me um I do remember my mum was brilliant at doing all the voices of you know um Enid Blyton and A. A. Milne and that were the kind of the classic yeah. children's stories but um on I mean of lots of it was all fiction obviously but I mean I read ev- I did read everything and I kind of didn't understand until I was a little bit older the th- things I was kind of gravitating more towards so it would be less of Obviously, you read as you get older things like goosebumps and stuff, but I found them fun. But I found them they weren't. I didn't find them as interesting. So, mm-hmm. thought, okay, I'm less interested in, in science fictiony things then. Um, and then I read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier when I was about. I must have been eleven. Um, a teacher called Mrs. Dandridge. Um, my first year of secondary school just said, said to me, "Would you like to borrow my copy of?" Um, Rebecca, I think you'd like it. And then I realised upon reading that, oh, I like I like fiction. I like these big, big novels that you can dive into. It's quite a formative time, isn't it, working out what you like um, in all aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and literature is one of them. What do you now find yourself gravitating towards? Because it, it can really change depending on our needs as we get older. It's still fiction, right. definitely. I mean, I read a wide range of things but I'm always don't feel fully kind of satiated unless it's unless it's a novel I mean and you go through patches where you read you know you you just don't quite find the right fit for you for a book and I I find that inordinately difficult if you're you're kind of read a slew of maybe four or five books and I'm just I mean I've finished them Unless there are, unless I really, really don't respond to them, but I generally finish them so I can kind of have a comprehensive opinion of mm-hmm. of why it is I don't like it because I do think that's as helpful as liking something. Um, but you know, when you when you land on a novel that fully engrosses you, I it, it's I just find, I find it the most enriching sensation. And I, I'll be talking to someone thinking, when will this conversation end? So I can go and read my book. Yeah. <laughs> it's just quite. I know the feeling. <laughs> Sometimes a book can just not be giving at that time there's been times when I've not felt it I've not been feeling it but then I've gone back maybe even several years later and I've been feeling it yeah definitely I've definitely had that experience where I've just something's been recommended or you know, a friend has suggested something and I've not responded and I thought oh, oh I wonder why you know that we're so close and I'm, I'm surprised I don't like it if, if this close friend likes it but then I've gone back to it and realized it was I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to read it um, but it's 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 definitely novels. I mean, I you know read short stories and nonfiction as well. I read essays, poetry, of course. But the the kind of luxury of diving into an entire world is it can't really it's unmatched for me. You've been in LA up until quite recently and filming. I know it's quite a rigorous schedule. Do you manage to find the time to dive into these worlds when you're already diving into several other worlds with your job? I really do. Yeah. That um, One of the other actors on the show, Jess, Jessica Lowe, she would joke that in between takes, I would somewhere would have secreted a book about my person or on the set or in a drawer <laughs> and would just immediately start reading. I mean, that sounds quite antisocial, but sometimes sets can be quite boring in between getting to do the acting. They, they, they can... Has a lot of time to kill, um, so I, yeah, always reading. Um, the f- job that I just did is set in the nineteen seventies and playing um, a feminist writer. So I was I was tending to read books that she would have been reading at that time because I, I enjoy them, and it was also sort of two birds one stone kind of thing. So I was reading, well, 
Joan Didion, Eve Babbitts, mm-hmm. um, Kate Millett, um, Betty Friedan, people like that. On the subject of it feeling antisocial, I don't believe it is because <laughs> I, I once took a book on a date and people, I told my <laughs> friends and they were like, you did not. But in my defence, if someone goes to the bar to buy a drink, you you have a look at your phone for a bit, don't you? They go to the bar to buy a drink. I would just open my book, just carry yeah. it on a little bit and then put it away. I don't think it's crazy. It's I the same as like spending a little bit of time in yeah. between scenes on your phone. I, yes, and I actually find that much more distracting. I don't take my phone to set with me because it's it's just something about the, the screen and I just find it, it it ruptures my concentration so much more. Other people would say, well, surely diving into, you know, a novel set in the 16th century is going to be more distracting. But I, I because it's so distinct, I, I don't find it's quite clean for me. And I have always been able to um, dive in, come in and out of a book very easily. I don't kind of need silence. I don't need to, I you know, grew up in quite a rowdy household and um, I can read anywhere. So a set for me that kind of, the, the kind of, comfort of the hubbub around me is is actually quite soothing so it's like white noise well we're going to be diving in and out of five of your favorite books starting with their eyes were watching god by zora neil hurston when 16 year old janie is caught kissing local do nothing johnny taylor her grandmother swiftly marries her off to an old man with 60 acres Janie survives two stifling marriages before she finally meets the man of her dreams who offers not diamonds but a packet of flowering seeds. How much do you love this book? I mean, that's a lot of um, hyperbole is going to be involved now, but it's but it's all accurate. It's I had never read anything like it. I discovered it because I had read Zadie Smith's White Teeth, uh, kind of devoured that, and then read that it was she wrote that it was one of her favourite novels. So I immediately bought it, um, and I had just read nothing like it. I just was so impressed by Janie and her kind of her her fortitude and her her tenacity to 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 believe like the kind of had that she had this ardent desire in the in the power of love and the kind of the the kind of healing power of love and there's there's she says in it somewhere there's the dream is the truth and she kind of sticks by this adage and she and I just found that it was just incredibly inspiring. I just thought she was such an impressive person to 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 become friends with. You felt like you were becoming friends with her. When did you read it? I was probably it was right after I read White Teeth, and that came out when I was maybe fourteen. So I must have been 15, 14, right. 15. So as a coming of age tale, as it were, as as a a protagonist who you could probably relate to. Did did it resonate? Did she resonate? I tell you what resonated was she discovers who she is by hurling herself into life. She doesn't sit back and allow life to happen. She she fearlessly ha- allows these experiences. And I and I had started acting when I was 10 and I knew immediately upon my first encounter with acting this is what I'm going to do. And obviously that sounds incredibly precocious and you you know people might humor you but I knew and I remember, and when I read that and saw that she was just, there's this wonderful passage where she's looking at, she's sitting beneath a tree and she sees a bumblebee and its kind of wings are loaded down with pollen, and she just finds the kind of the beauty and the strength and the kind of tenacity of this tiny creature, and she finds and she kind of locks her 
sort of hopes onto it, it felt to me like she was inspired by something that was so small that it kind of made her feel powerful and it was just yeah that was what I responded to the idea that if you believe in something that that is enough like the the dream is the truth and I remember thinking like that this is you know people might be kind of belittling this idea that I want to be an actor you know girl of a housing estate what do I know but it was no I'm I I dream it so I'm going to do it and you did well Janie evolves from a voiceless teen to a woman in control of her own destiny um as you just said so do you feel like you've reached a point where you're in control uh, of your destiny in control of the things that happen in your life um I don't know that I would say I'm in control of it I think I think freedom comes from not trying to be in control. I think I've felt more stressed when I've tried to control things. Um, you know, that phrase, control the controllables. It's, it, it, I used to be, get so, not anxious, but nervous when auditioning, for example. And then as soon as I just thought, this serves no purpose, just enjoy it. Just if not trying to control it. I discovered uh, there was much more freedom and I was more a more accurate version of myself because I wasn't kind of aping what I thought people would want. Um, so I know I wouldn't say that I am in control of it. And, and I mean, especially with what I do, I could be on a plane to South Africa tomorrow and filming there for seven months and you just, you just don't know. But that's, I find that exhilarating. If you lean into not knowing, I think there's more joy and more peace in that. You were saying just before we started recording that the, the shooting schedule um, most recently has been so intense, but you love it. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I'm really annoying <laughs> in the mornings because I'm genuinely eager to get to set. I mean, I was sending, there's an eight hour time difference between LA and London. I was sending, responding to messages to, um, to my sister and it would, was about four in the morning with me. And I was like, look at the palm trees, aren't they lovely? <laughs> <laughs> Just and dancing in the van with my driver and just we came into one of the trailers and Jake Johnson, who's another actor on the show, he was he was still in the, the hair chair, which is a chair you get your hair done, not a chair made of hair, to <laughs> clarify. So I um, think I've seen um, a horror movie about one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, any day now. And he and I was kind of dancing around him to Fleetwood Mac or something, we always have music going, and he was like, are you always this lively, this early? I was like, you betcha! <laughs> It's just, I do, I really, I, I find you get very, um, you build a kind of momentum, you get real stamina, so it's almost like flexing a, a muscle, it just gets stronger. So, and, and because filming Minx was particularly fun, y y why would you, why would you find it anything but exhilarating? So yeah, the, the, ske the schedule was full on, but um, you know, it's, when you're doing what you love, it's like a day at the spa. <laughs> well, Minx... It tackles complex issues um, like female pleasure and race and power. When you were, I guess, at the time that you would have been reading this book, when you were a teen and, and you were starting to form your opinions, your thoughts, your feelings about those topics, um, do you feel that that's something that's evolved since doing this show? Yes, I do, actually. I They were... I was struck when reading The Eyes Watching God that she's she explores kind of gender roles and um, it, 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 kind of emancipation and female empowerment and they, they were and those were explored. There's lots of kind of imagery around her hair and around um, the, the tree and a mule and there's and I remember it was articulating ideas that I was 
becoming familiar with by that age, 14, 15, be- becoming engaged with. But it is interesting all of these years later to be shooting a show like Minx and they're, you know, set in the 70s, it's set 50 years ago, but w- we're still now having the same conversations. And there's a, there's a kind of contemporaneous aspect to the show, which is depressing. <laughs> and we shouldn't still be having these conversations. But there are certainly things about, yeah, female pleasure and um, w- women being active in their desire, for example, and uh, even even the way it's spoken about still today in quite a kind of um, ambiguous way that has made me engage with those issues kind of all over again and you kind of re- you realize that you've they're not resolved and they're not going to become resolved but it's you're there the show has made me re-examine them and have different conversations with my friends friends that i'm very close with we're very we're all kind of liberal outspoken and you know, widely read so you kind of you had you challenge we don't always agree on everything of course and but this minx brought up topics that i realized i haven't spoken a great deal to my friends about um like their pleasure and desire and um the complexity of of consent and things like that it's not it's not actually something we've spoken about in at great length explicitly well long may we speak about these subjects and I hope that conversation evolves as Mm. it will have done from when you read this book to when you're filming this show and into the future. We move on now to your second bookshelfie book which is Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion. By turns heartbreaking and disturbing, this novel follows hollowed out actress Maria Wyeth as her life plays out in a numbing routine of perpetual freeway driving. In her early 30s, Divorced from her husband, dislocated from her friends, Maria is a woman who has run out of both desires and purpose. Did this resonate? Um, <laughs> I really get the impression it I didn't. Still... <laughs> We've been talking about it. <laughs> um, I mean, no, that no, Maria, it didn't resonate in that way. But um, it, I mean, I was totally knocked sideways by this yeah. book. I'd read. The Year of Magical Thinking, and I had read Slouching Towards Bethlehem, um, the, the first of which is uh, about the dealing with her grief after the loss of her husband, the second a collection of essays that she wrote in the 60s. This was the first novel of hers that I'd read. And what I found so arresting about it was the kind of deceptive simplicity of it. I mean, it's, for example, some of the chapters are a few sentences and that's it. And... I would find that the thoughts between the words would sort of linger in my mind, sort of hang like vivid paintings that I would need to kind of close the book and allow those to sort of ruminate for a while before I moved on to the next chapter. And I and I hadn't really done that. Um, I mean, these were chapters would be tight, tight, just mm. a few sentences, and they were so powerful. I think what has she said? Because often. I find reading Didion, at least you'd you feel something before being able to identify what it is you feel. But like like when you might walk into a room and you and there's a smell you recognise, but you can't pinpoint it. But you know, you know, you mm-hmm. smell something that you, you. What is it? What is it? What is it? ah? It's my mother's perfume. That's what it. But it's her words are like that. There's such a kind of evocative um, power in them that that's what resonated. Right. Um, and I just thought, I've never read anyone like this. I've never encountered a writer so searing, the way she can 
capture a personality with kind of skewers an identity to the page with with just a single sentence i mean there's this is in another book i think it's in democracy where she talks about a woman who lights um lights a cigarette with a match against her shoe the sole of her shoe and you just immediately understand well well, where's she been? How has she learned to do that? Who showed her that? Why is she doing that? Why doesn't she use the matchbox? It's there's, you just have so many questions yeah. and answers about this woman immediately. And Joan Didion has this unique um, aptitude to do that. I guess there's a a familiarity as well when her images are so searing, as mm. you put it, so evocative. Um, the book's set just outside of Hollywood. It's full of existential angst and alienation. <laughs> yeah, it's a laugh it, a minute. <laughs> is, it, is it a side Hollywood that you recognise that you've seen or you've heard about from your friends or colleagues? Yes, that, yeah, that, um, I have, you know, I started going to LA when I was, I think I was about 21 or 22. And I mean, it was a baptism of fire. Mm. I, <laughs> I had, I was in all sorts of things happen. <laughs> they just thought, oh, Wow, it really, it really is the the beauty and the beast. This place because it was so full of hope and the, the dreams and people kind of come from all over the place. But but for that reason, it's there's also a there can be a sort of creeping dread to it. There can right. be the kind of unrelenting blaze of the sun and everyone is in the industry. That there, there's this sort of a, a relentless energy to it. That if you're not part of that current it can pull you under people go there to kind of live out their dreams but quite often die without achieving them and there's just there just can be a sense of that there <laughs> so you so in order to so you need to sort of find your own people you need to find your own purpose you need to i i found when i was going there initially just it was just so soul crushing and you'd go to pilot season it was just you're just 10 a penny it was I mean, really your sense of self-esteem and self-worth is to, your sense of value is so married to the idea of success that it taught me very quickly you need to have another way of find of placing value on yourself it cannot be tied up with this because if you don't work for two three four years then what are you worth it just it just and re and reading this book you see how dangerous it is that, that her it feels like her self worth her self-worth is really dangerously entangled with her success as an actress what's been your process of, of finding that sense of self-worth recognizing it and then working out how to achieve it without the external I mean it's not like I've arrived it's I'm much better at it than I was but um honestly reading yeah. remembering that that is I it's always been a, a source of comfort and always joy for me that. if all, that always you're never you know like you're never alone with a book um and knowing that as much as I love what I do, it is what I do. It is not who I am. And there are so many other things that I am, you know, and my and I, my friends, obviously, everyone values that my, their friends, but they're such kind of, they're seeing, seeing your friends, it's that they're such a shot in the arm, just remembering that that's, there's so much more value to be had from being a good friend than that. I mean, it sounds so... I sound like I'm kind of in a ladybird book but it's but it's true just try not to think right well I'm only worth something if I get this big part in this show with this person that's just so temporary and 
fleeting and 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 subjective that so I do find that furnishing myself with things that make me feel happy really simple things like swimming in the sea and reading a good book and seeing my friends and being there for them makes me feel valued and valuable yeah and and grounded I guess yes. as well um and what is it like moving because I know your home is here in London but you're spending a lot of time in LA what's it like going between com- continents how do you find it I love it yeah. I love it so much I've got my mum was a real travel bug so she kind of right. instilled that in us when, um we were you know you'd mention that you were doing reading a place set in Afghanistan she's like oh yeah I really liked Afghanistan for the month that I was there when were you in Afghanistan oh. doing what mum <laughs> she was like well you know this and that and or then you'd mention Germany. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember throwing things over the wall for people. Like, what? Plastic bags? They didn't have any plastic bags or jeans. So like, when did you do that? Oh, you know, just, you know. And then she kind of would be quite ambiguous about it. And you think, okay, I won't ask any more questions. But she instilled the idea of the, the hunger for travel and the curiosity. And, um, you know, we didn't go to your typical places. We'd kind of go to Thailand and um, explore those kinds of things or go camping. It was, but so... The idea of getting to travel with my job is a massive appeal to me. It's, I mean, I really am aware of how lucky I am that, I mean, I did one job where we got to go to Russia, Cambodia, Italy and South Africa. What job was this? It was called Hooten and the Lady. It was an action oh adventure show. I Because, I, you know, I read the episodes and I saw where they were set and I thought, oh, right, okay, great. There's going to be some brilliant aircraft hangar and, you know, chipping soldry that will, that will do that will do the, the job. Um and then you go, oh, no, here's my visa to go to Cambodia. This is incredible. So I, lo- I love getting to travel. And the fact that Minx was shot in L.A. Um, God, this is so, I'm such a cornball sometimes. <laughs> you, I just never got tired of seeing the Hollywood sign. I was staying oh, in an apartment yeah. <laughs> that looked directly on his Hollywood sign. I think this is, this is ridiculous. This is so much fun. And you just, it just never grew up. I mean, as I said, I grew up on a housing estate in White City. So, and it was I still at 36 I'm it doesn't it's not wasted on me that that I I do feel so grateful I actually get to do it um and then seeing the Hollywood sign outside your window as you're kind of getting up to go to work and be paid to try and make people laugh is just a bit um it's a they're real pinch me moments but I think practicing that gratitude every single moment of every single day even if it's for the rest of your <laughs> life and you never get tired of seeing that I think that's not a bad thing yeah I can but, but it does lead people to think oh my god you're so annoying when I'm dancing around at four in the morning <laughs> I need to, te- need to <laughs> temper my excitement sometimes. well it comes from your mum who sounds like an absolute legend Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. Your third bookshelfy book is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Arguably one of Wolf's greatest works, this short novella opens with Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay and their eight children holidaying at their summer house in Skye, surrounded by family friends. But time passes, bringing with it war and death, and the summer home stands empty until one day, many years later, the family return to make their long-postponed visit. Can you tell us why you picked this book? Well, Virginia Woolf has been a big part of my life 
um, in many different ways. I first read this book when I was about 13 or 14, which was far too young. But um, again, it was actually at the suggestion of a te the same teacher, Mrs. Dandridge. And I didn't quite respond to it. And then I read it again at the suggestion of another teacher named Mr. Chivers when I was about 16. And it was a completely different experience like we were saying before. I was, I was just too young to appreciate yeah. it for. Um, and it was a revelation to me. That, I mean, that sounds, you know, quite rapturous, but it really was. It, I, she, Wolf has a way of articulating that she has such purposecacity in the way that she kind of skew, again, captures an identity and she was able to articulate ideas that I knew I had but they were too murky to identify and it was and then upon reading Wolf it was like a light was shone on those ideas and I could see them clearly and the kind of the, the satisfaction, the kind of the, the swell that you experience when you f see your thoughts articulated on a page and like the, the, the recognition, you feel like that you're having a real communion with this person. And it, it's qu quite magical, really. Um, and she and to the lighthouse was that experience for me. And it awoke in me an awareness of ideas, like I said, that I knew that I'd had, but just wasn't quite able to articulate, you know, the idea of um, gender roles female emancipation female empowerment that it was I I knew I, obviously by that age the ideas of feminism and everything but I wasn't it really awoke in me a kind of fearsome alignment with feminism and I went on to read everything she wrote uh and I mean it's so, so much so that I I was 16 when I read that book and I was at um sixth form college and I thought that I was going to just after college go straight into working as an actor, but but big thanks to Mr. Chivers and that and him suggesting that that I read that book and in fact he he made me realise that I clearly loved modernist fiction so I went on to read all so many modernist authors. I decided actually no I want to go to university and study English. It completely changed the course of my life, and I knew I wanted to be an actor. I was already acting. I was already working, making money as an actor while continuing with my schooling. But because of To the Lighthouse, I decided I want to go to university and luxuriate in studying books for mm. three years and I want to write my dissertation on Virginia Woolf. And that's what I did. Oh, did you? And it's, I mean, I, she, I, one on Virginia Woolf, the other one I wrote on James Joyce. So, you know, both quite lighthearted. Um, what, was your, what was your dissertation on Virginia Woolf? What were you um, I wrote about her use of moon imagery um, across several of her books and how she would use that to explore... Um, madness and badness and sadness in women. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I mean, it's been a long time since doing a dissertation, but if anyone ever asked me, I'm like, oh yeah, I've not talked about that for a while, I but there was a time when it was my entire oh my gosh, life. My whole life, <laughs> yeah. whole life. I mean, but just in a brilliant way, I mean, it was, it, but she did, it, it's funny, you just when you encounter an, author, encounter an author at the right time, and that's truly what she was, and I'm so glad that I, I did have her around in the university days and then going on to read A Room of One's Own and just feeling so fired up by that and to think when that was written. I mean, I think What to the Lighthouse was written in 1927 and to think I was reading it all of these years later and and the kind of the, the, the passion that it evoked in me 
was I mean you can hear how how, how passionate I become about them but I yeah she really did awaken in me a realization that I was a feminist and I and I would fight for those ideals and that I was if I was could do anything to continue these ideas and talking about these things and I would so she yeah she really does um loom large in my life still I'm getting this image of you um, as a as a child, as a teenager, as a as a student, sort of growing up. I know this this book it it opens in a in a busy family household. You said yourself you were used to your household being a, a loud one, and mm-hmm. we've got a little glimpse of your mom as well. I know it was a, a single parent family. Um, tell us a, a little bit more about your mother, your family, your your household that you grew up in, and and, and how it shaped the person that you are. Well, yeah, my parents. Um divorced when I was six my, my dad was still in the picture but, but he but it was my we lived with my mum um I've got older brother younger sister um and we also fostered we were a foster family we fostered children for 17 years so that that was always you know a rowdy house wow um and it was a small it was a small house so we were all on top of each other kind of cheek by jowl but it my mum is like just an absolute force of nature she's she's funny she's intelligent um she's naughty she's witty she's beautiful she's she's the best possible role model you could ask for and incredibly supportive without being you know meddling she I mean, when I, a 10 year old tells you want to be an actor she was she didn't dismiss it but she didn't kind of force me into it. she just let me do it and I remember when I got my first paycheck at 12 she I said what do I do with it sure it's not my money it's your money you do with it what you want so classic 12 year old I put it into a bond that I couldn't mm. trust until I was 18 ah. don't know where I got that idea from but that's what I did mm. <laughs> 12 year olds and their bonds um, what we like <laughs> really really weird um, <laughs> but we I mean it was it was f- full of activity and um, I mean you know you'd, you'd argue and you'd fight and you'd make up it was yeah, lots of books everywhere and um we, my sister was studying dance at that point. My my brother was kind of into the drama, but but didn't like it in the way that I liked it. It was it was um, it was a really fun household. I mean, I was very independent. I suppose I was quite from a really young age, like precociously independent. Wanted to kind of go off and do my own thing. So I remember when I'd be working on the set, and my mum would have to be there because I needed a chaperone. I I I hated it. Not because I'd hate my mum, I adored my mum, but I just thought, this is I'm fine. I'm doing it. I don't need you here. Mm. Obviously you think you're such a grown up at that age, but um it was um yeah, it was a really fun household. And it shapes the person that you become. How much of yourself do you now put into your roles. I mean, obviously, with mm. someone like, say, Carrie Johnson, there's a lot of research that would need doing, and it's someone who has been um, portrayed by the media a lot as well. But can you bring yourself to to these roles? I mean, I think that varies, of course, with who you play. I mean, with Joyce Prigger in Minx, there's a lot of. I mean, all of my friends when I told them I was playing that role, they just said this. This feels like it has literally been written for you. I mean, I mean, oh, God, I make myself sound so uncool. A lot of the books that she would be talking about and kind of, oh, you should you should read this. And I I had read all of them. And oh. the the creator of the show, Ellen Rappel, she was just like, of course you have. <laughs> and I had copies of them, and they were thumbed and they were underlined. And I just I kind of brought my copies of the books that the character talks about with me. Such a loser. Um, but with Carrie Johnson, 
you know, we actually grew, we we grew up in similar areas ish, both kind of West London. We she's only a couple of years younger than I am. We'd we actually I realised that I knew some people she'd gone to school with, so I was able to speak to them. I mean, there was that there was that kind of proximity, but we grew up worlds apart in terms of our socioeconomic. She was much wealthier than I I was. Um, but the but you still bring yourself to it in terms of you can't play what you've read about i th i was find that really irresponsible there was uh, the director michael winterbottom sort of said you are playing a woman who is pregnant and whose husband is in the public eye that's that's who you're playing so you, you weren't playing carrie antoinette or all of these these kind of other mm, the headlines kind of unkind nicknames whether whether they were fair or not is is irrelevant the point is you can't use a newspaper article to kind of build your characterization you you go off primarily the the script that's in front of you and it's you know you i realized that lots of people had very kind of entrenched opinions about her and and i would ask but what so what's that based on what oh well we've heard this and they thought but you see you just you've not met her you don't know i mean and i didn't speak to her either but um because again i thought that would not that i doubt she would have agreed but um <laughs> not like i've got context to ask her um i just thought that would color my impression of her so you do i brought myself to it in terms of thinking well how would i feel if my husband was in a a great position of power and I felt like he was making mistakes and I you know carries by all accounts is, is very intelligent she's well educated we know that she's she knows what she's talking about in this instance so it's it of course he, he must have asked her opinion on things what partner doesn't ask their partner for an opinion she happened to know what she was talking about the problem lies in the fact that she's not you know she's not an elected official and she may have been giving him details she shouldn't have been but in terms of bringing myself to that, I thought, well, I've certainly done that. I've given my opinion on things, often unsolicited. Um, so you, I think you can't help but do that. Um, but the the fun part in what I do, though, is that often you don't understand the motivations of someone immediately. You do kind of think, oh, I wouldn't do that. So then you can start exploring, well, I wonder why they did. I want, let's think of some backstory. Let's, let's furnish this with a kind of emotional world that would that you can then understand why they would behave that way that often it's fun to play someone who's unlike yourself well on the subject of furnishing a story with the parts that we don't always get to hear we move on to your fourth book which is hamnet by maggie o'farrell oh gosh yes <laughs> take a big deep breath yeah this women's prize winning novel explores the short life of hamnet shakespeare this is a tenderly written and emotionally devastating account of the Bard's only son, whose name was given to one of the most celebrated plays ever written. Tell me why it solicited such a deep breath, such a sigh. I was completely spellbound by this book. It um, uh, was just, it's devastating. It, it's almost unbearable, kind of the aching beauty Um in its pages I'd, I'd read it fortuitously um, by the sea in Cornwall which you know was the was the ideal setting because it felt so elemental the way Farrell builds a kind of sense of place um 
I th- I still think about the characters in that book. I still they still occupy space in my mind, and I know that sounds absurd, but they really do. And I think that is magical to kind of. I think it's so exciting when I I, I discovered Maggie Farrell with Hamlet, so quite late in the day. She and but it was just thrilling to to fall so hopelessly in love with a writer and then realise there's so much other other things that I can now devour. Like it was it was just so exciting. And to realise it's kind of emphasised that there are so many authors out there yet to discover. I mean, you, you know, you can... You, there's no excuse to be bored because there's so much to be read. And she... I, I, oh, God, I really... I'm almost at a loss for words to describe. There's, there aren't enough superlatives to describe how breathtaking her writing is especially in this book um the the sheer creativity of how she articulates the world it's it's the fact that she gives you such a sensory experience before she's even i mean before you've even met the characters you you know you're you're you can kind of smell the sawdust and feel its crunch beneath your feet against the flagstones that have been you know become shiny from centuries of footfall you can see the kind of pleasing blaze of the fire in the hearth you can you can hear it's crackling in your ears and all of that to build the room in which you're soon to hear these voices it kind of you have such a sense of place before you've even met someone before you've it's just it's it's truly remarkable I mean I've, I, I get so fired up when I think about that and just think these are these are black marks on a page. This is these are just words on a page, and I feel like I lose all sense of where and when I am when I'm reading her. And as I said, I was reading this in Cornwall by the Sea, and this actually was the one book that I have not been able to just dip in and dip out of. The way I was saying before, I'm good at doing that. I once I was in this world, I was in it, and I couldn't I couldn't be taken away from it. And it really did feel like sticking my head underwater. It was just a completely different world. And the, the the power of a writer to be able to wholly absorb you and you're kind of within its clutches is just kind of bliss. I feel like if any of our listeners haven't read it yet, then that will ensure that they do. <laughs> <laughs> they will be so. going straight out and so. getting a copy. I hope, so. <laughs> I hope it truly is. I, oh my God. I mean, I haven't reread it yet because I just can't. Well, it sounds like that experience was so visceral of yes. reading it. You you almost don't want to ruin your memory of it and and the impact of it. Mm. Then it was it was not just in space but also in time. That yes. that was your experience of this book, definitely. And it still it still moves around. So, I mean, mm. I know I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm really I think about them. I think about those people and their lives they're still in my head oh yeah, I they was, continue to live they still they you. live on inside you yeah. these are these are she's she made it all up i mean yes of course these people did exist in reality but we don't we don't one of the reasons why i love this book as well is that o'farrell gave shakespeare's wife an actual life she yeah. watched you know there was so much erroneous things written about her we didn't know anything about her so she's created this narrative that's so much more satisfying um but i don't feel like i want to read it again yet because they're all still in there they're all still there so vividly that I, I'm kind of still thinking about things will remind me of stuff that I've read in the book it's remarkable I read that I read that in in, in 2020s and it, it's still doing that did 
reading Hamlet affect how you um, read or view or think about Shakespeare's work now? Because uh, presumably, you know, you, you've, you must have read a lot of Shakespeare studying English at uni. Mm. Um, yes, actually, which um, is curious because, of course, it, she just, if I was made it all up. So, I mean, of course, she was researched it heavily, of course, all of those sorts of things. But the specificities of, of what um, Agnes goes through you don't, you, is from a vow's imagination. But yes, it did. You know, the fact that he sent all of his money back to stratford maybe to support his wife and his children, the fact that, um, I mean, I mean, reading my namesake, I'm, my, I'm, my name is from Hamlet. Like I kind of thought about that play in a very different way after reading this book. I mean, to, to think that it's, a writer, you know, a contemporary writer would affect how I think about someone from centuries ago is um, that as well exposes how magical writing can be, that it can reframe something with which you feel so familiar yeah. and opens up whole other sort of antechambers of thought that you simply not engage with, but you realise were there dormant all along in your mind and you think, well, how much more is there to be discovered? What other dust sheets will be whipped off from covered up rooms that thanks to a writer's imagination it's i find that endlessly exciting well as you just said as well the the book is largely told from the perspective of agnes shakespeare's wife a figure largely lost from history mm. when you pick your roles and, and all these wonderful roles that you have um, taken on are you drawn to to fleshing out women's stories particularly untold women's stories in your work, I mean, yes, definitely. That I, that was one of the appeals actually of playing Carrie Johnson because mm -hmm. I did think we don't know much about her. Actually, she's despite being a public figure, she's very carefully curated her public image, um, and you can see why. You can see how she's been, regardless of how you you vote, regardless of how you feel. I do think we can agree that the way she was kind of portrayed in the press is is really dangerous. And to me, it does smack of misogyny. And I find that obviously <laughs> problematic. Um, so the opportunity to play her and kind of just play her as an in, as a person without applying my politics to it, I th I felt was was needed. Um, I mean, there is there are lots of characters that, you know, you read about and um, that I'd love to have the opportunity to play. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously, it's a fictional character, but Joyce Prigger in Minx, that it's by playing her, we're able to kind of flesh out the idea of an imperfect feminist. You know, the fact that she's got all of these ideals and thinks that she knows what she's doing. And then she encounters people that are different from her. And she realizes, oh, actually, there's there's so much I've not understood. I mean, she's not an intersectional feminist right. at that point. She doesn't. She's completely lived in her little kind of um, white middle class bubble. She doesn't. She hasn't encountered people who've lived a different life to her. So through the show, I mean, yes, it's a, essentially a workplace comedy, but we are able to f to flesh out people that aren't often represented. Um, and because we're shooting it in, you know, 2023, we were able to apply a greater understanding of those oversights, um, which which wouldn't have occurred in the 70s. But, you know, that's the benefit of, of hindsight. In Minx, there is this increased focus on female agency um, and honouring the female rather than um, the male gaze. In what ways do you create that feminist lens on set? Well, there are lots of willies, which is 
<laughs> wonderful. Um, love my job. <laughs> oh, this, this is why. <laughs> this is why I was up jolly at five in the morning. <laughs> um, because we, it, it was the it's the female gaze. You don't get to see women's pleasure depicted on screen often. It's kind of and or spoken about in a way that's. Um, I mean, it sounds absurd, but not hypersexualized. Just speak, you know, um, acknowledging that it exists. Even um, we're able to. It's all very much. I mean, yes, it's heteronormative, but the 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 female gaze there. What do, the fact that women are active in their desire? This kind of fallacy that it's kind of, you know, something passive that happens to you is just not mine and my female friends' experience at all. And it what's so satisfying about the show is that it explores that and. Um, kind of debunks just myths that seem to kind of um, still uh, have a lot of traction. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, the lovely, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know what my um, you know, friends would say about this, but um, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a different show. The set feels very different. I mean, there's, there's a lot of female energy. There's, um, the 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 storylines focus on on yeah on on female agency and kind of and but also f acknowledging when that when you make mistakes in that way and it not being the end of the world and you don't, there's no you don't you can make a mistake and learn what I often feel like men are afforded the space to make mistakes and not and not have to be kind of totally vilified for it I feel like there's a lot less margin for error for women um, and I like that Joyce. In, she's she's a flawed she's a flawed person and you do, and you see the people around her telling her as such but still embracing her into the fold um so i think that's an important message as well that you know let's we can just allow women to have opinions without calling them opinionated we move on to your fifth and final book this week which is in fact a poem. It is sung by Christina Rossetti. Christina Rossetti was one of the leading female poets of the Victorian era. Song, famously beginning, When I am dead, my dearest, remains one of her best loved poems. Why did you pick it? Well, I chose this because I've long enjoyed Rossetti's poetry, as many people have. This poem in particular was a lifeline of sorts for me. My friend Caroline took her own life um, a few years ago and it happened right as we went into lockdown and it was the most painful experience I have had the misfortune of experiencing. Um, and we were completely alone and it was so difficult to kind of understand what had happened and and accept what had happened and i just was reading trying to trying to kind of keep myself afloat and i read this poem and it was like someone had just reached in and just pulled me out of, of something dangerous it was and i and the 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 power of of i mean of that poem to keep me afloat is extraordinary really because there was there, you know obviously you're speaking to your friends and everything but um this poem in particular felt like it was almost carrie herself saying it there's a, there's a particular line when i feel myself 
getting drawn into the kind of the agony of the grief like the, it feels it feels so physical that it just as soon as it comes to my mind I, f I feel pulled back from the brink and it's be the green grass above me it's the most beautiful notion that she's it feels like Carrie saying don't be silly get don't sit there what's the point of sitting there moping live life and live it well live it live it because I no longer am live it for me don't sit there and mope be the green grass above me don't this serves no purpose to sit and mope obviously grieve for her but don't allow that to overwhelm all of the other feelings about her um and I'm telling you that poem is the, the power of that to just kind of go right come on up you get I cannot put a value on that is it is invaluable and I think people can often some people can often find that poetry is inaccessible or it's oh you know you need a degree to be able to understand it it's just simply not the case and I, I it's like people saying that about Joyce I wish Joyce you know would hate that um but it's it's like a short sharp shock a big like a shot in the arm poetry when you read at just the right moment mm. and it can truly lift you from yourself and it can it can articulate something that you're feeling and it almost gives you a guiding light for that moment and then lifts you out of it and that poem never fails to lift me up and make me feel like I'm going to do her proud. What does living life well mean to you? What does doing Caroline proud in the way that you live your life mean to you? It means to not let the fuckers get you down. <laughs> um, you know, gosh, I mean, that's a, a hard question to answer, but it means to just go to, I mean, going back to Janie to kind of discover who you are by hurling yourself into life and not hiding away from it. And Carrie was such a dynamo. She was such a force for joy that that I'm going to continue in that vein for her but and for myself to not just surrender your power to someone because of fear, but to just to, to kind of step into it and and do things that are unfamiliar and, and challenge yourself and all of those kind of cliches, but you just think we just, we're so often kind of wings clipped, curtailed and told to be one thing. There's no reason you can, I'm learning to get my pilot's license at the moment. Because I was like, I want to, I want to be a pilot. I want to fly. I want to be a pilot. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to get my pilot's license. So that's what wow. I'm doing. Wow. Just why not? I might, you know, then I can be the new Tom Cruise. Um, she's yeah it's she it just means to just go out and and do all of the things yeah. you don't have to be one thing it can be many things and um that it's I'm just so grateful to to, to poetry like that's a piece of poetry that you kind of remind you know it you can know something intellectually but to feel it emotionally actually Joan Didion in um the year of magical thinking she she writes about um knowing that her husband is dead but not being able to throw away his shoes in case he needs them and those two thoughts existing coexisting 
they sound so contradictory and yet they are just they're both both perfectly valid because you can understand something intellectually but not quite yet have grasped it emotionally and and oftentimes that ha that happens with Carrie like I'll still think to text her and or, or I'll see a meme and want to send it to her and realize oh god I can't but then I remember be the green grass above me and I can still enjoy knowing that she would have found it funny it doesn't need to kind of my conversation with her continues but just in a different way now so i think that's that's living life well poetry is so powerful mm. it is that short sharp shot <laughs> that you that you just described do you find time to read poetry in your in your day to day or is it something that you maybe reach for when you need it or something that just takes you by surprise like this one did when it turns out you needed it mm. but you don't necessarily know you need it I well I tend to have um poetry books dotted around the house right. I don't have them kind of all on the shelf like the novels are for that purpose um Ali Asiri has gone, done beautiful collections of poetry um you know poem for every day of the year or poem for every spring day and things like that so that it's quite nice to have them just around so that you while you're waiting for the kettle to boil you just flick open a page and read it I think it's quite nice to have poetry around so you can dip into it as easily as that um and then there are also there are there's there are some poets that I reach for specifically um when I don't know you're walking along and there's a full moon and I think oh I should read some basho it's, it's and we know it, how you love the moon I from your dissertation moon. I love the bloody moon moon <laughs> <laughs> can I get enough of the moon <laughs> I really do talk about Moon a lot. I kind of stuck to woman. Oh no, join the club. I do too. <laughs> Between the the pieces of poetry dotted around for when you need them, the books that are sitting here in front of me, Hamlet that you that you devoured <laughs> by the sea, all the books on your shelves. Um, it's been amazing to get to talk to you about the words that have shaped you, that have impacted you. If you had to choose just one book oh, God, I knew you were ask that. <laughs> from your list that you brought today as a favourite, which one would it be and why? Look at Have a little, yeah, a little um, shuffle through. I think it would be Hamnet. Yeah. I think it would be Hamnet. Um, f yeah, because it's just... Um, well, look, for someone so loquacious, I'm rendered speechless. So I think that kind of says, that says it all. Really. Lot, yeah. um, I, I just think it's tr a truly extraordinary, transportive piece of piece of writing. And um, I'll never tire of, of diving into it. And once again, to anyone who hasn't read it, who's listening, <laughs> I think you should be sold by now. Yeah, I want a commission on that piece, <laughs> O'Farrell. Ophelia. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very for welcome. We said we we're going to dive into these bits. We well and truly dove into them. <laughs> um, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Vic Hope, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>